Our most gracious Heavenly Father, your name is holy. You are good and righteous and just in all of your ways. And we thank you and we praise you, knowing that you are God Almighty, the great I am, from everlasting to everlasting, you never change. And what a great God you are. Who could fathom your greatness? We can only imagine a very small percentage of how great and how awesome you are. And with these things in mind, Lord, it's with these things in mind that we know that we can come before you and we can pour our hearts out to you and know that you hear us and know that you are with us and know that you are for us. And so, Lord, we come before you today with so much grief at what is going on in the world around us. Thank you for a time when we can come and set our minds on you rather than all these things that are going on in the world. Lord, we pray for peace. Your word says, blessed are the peacemakers. And Father, it, it, it just seems like there are so few peacemakers today. Your word tells us that you are sovereign over everything. That you can turn the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That you can change the leopard's spots. And so, Lord, as we survey the land of our country and see lawlessness prevailing, and not only lawlessness prevailing, but the governing authorities endorsing this lawlessness, we pray for peace. We pray for peace. We also pray, Lord, for justice all the way around. We pray for justice on behalf of those who have been wronged, whether that is by police brutality or whether that is people who have lost everything in the riots. We pray for the, the families of all who have lost a loved one in the past two weeks, in, in, in the midst of all this madness, including the, the events that, that started all this madness. Lord, we pray for peace and justice to prevail. And we recognize, Lord, that true peace and true justice flows from you. It, it's, it's part of who you are, oh God. It's part of who you are. And so we lift these circumstances up to you, knowing that you and your gospel alone can change hearts, can reconcile us not only to yourself, but to one another. And we thank you that that is the power of the gospel. Father, thank you for an opportunity to gather. Thank you for fair weather that allows us to be out here. Thank you for the people who made this possible in our congregation. Father, we thank you for everybody who is able to make it today. Um, we also pray for our children who are here. We pray, Lord, that as we dive into your word today, that 
seeds will be planted even with them. We pray for their salvation. We pray that they would come to a true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray not only for the children outside of the womb, but also for the children inside of the womb. We thank you for all of them. We remember, Lord, that they are a blessing, that they are a gift from your hand. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we remember that it is perfect, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is unassailable, that it is truth. And we pray, Lord, that as we study your word, that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding, would give us conviction, would give us a desire to walk blamelessly before you, all for the glory of Christ. May he be glorified and lifted up in this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, there's a little sunshine coming out. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 25. We're going to be looking at Psalm 25 today. Of course, the first Sunday of every month, we go through a psalm. And I have to say, every now and then, when I'm I'm preparing a sermon, I think, man, I, I couldn't have found a more appropriate passage to preach, and yet, if you know the way I preach, I'm just going through these things sequentially, so it's not like I plan to preach Psalm 25 this week, but Psalm 25 is a prayer from the depths of despair, and as you look at our country right now, there's so much despair, so praise the Lord, we are in Psalm 25 today, we'll be looking through, uh, studying through the whole thing. For their Super Bowl commercial in 2003, uh, the company FedEx ran a commercial that played off the movie Castaway, in which, of course, Tom Hanks played a FedEx employee who, uh, who survived a plane crash and ended up living for years on a desert island somewhere. And in this commercial, an actor who was supposed to look kind of similar to Tom Hanks um, is at the point where, you know, when he was finally rescued, he, he looks like, uh, like he just got off an island. He goes up to a home dressed in his FedEx outfit and uh, with a FedEx package in hand and rings the doorbell and a woman comes to the door and he says, Hi, I was marooned on an island for five years with this package. I swore that I would deliver it to you because I work for FedEx. And the woman who had answered the door says back to him, Oh, that's very admirable. Thank you. And so she, she turns around and she turns to go back in the house, and, and he says to her, oh, by the way, what's in the package? Oh, nothing really, she says, just a satellite phone, a GPS locator, a fishing rod, water purifier, and some seeds. And that was a pretty hilarious commercial. Uh, it, it got the point across. Um, and, and yet I have no doubt that if that story were real, uh, if it was me in the, in, the, in the shoes of the person who was marooned for five years, I would be wondering, man, why didn't I just open the package? It would have made my life so much easier, wouldn't it? But just like the way that the contents of, of that box would have made life so much easier, there are certain things, friends, in the Christian life that are given to make our lives easier as well. And too often, we just leave those things in the box when they could be making our lives a whole lot better. 
Chief among those things is something even better than a satellite phone, and yet similar, I guess, to a satellite phone, and that is prayer. Prayer. Prayer is our God-ordained means of communicating with God, of crying out to Him and knowing that we will be heard by Him. And when better to do that than when you have reached the point of despair, as I'm sure any of us would do very quickly if we were marooned on some uh, desert island for, uh, for even a short amount of time. But the truth is, friends, that the Christian life is more like being caught behind enemy lines in a war, in the, in the middle of a, of a fierce, fierce ground war, than it is being marooned on a desert island. Now, if you're caught behind enemy lines in the middle of a war, how are you going to deal with your situation? Well, if you have a satellite phone, you, you, you call for help. You call for directions from someone who knows how to navigate you out of your current location, out of your current circumstances. And that is very similar to what prayer is for us as Christians. And who knew this better than David? He was very clearly a man of very devout prayer. After all, I mean, given the number of psalms uh, that, that he wrote, which were clearly drawn from his own personal prayer life, we know that he often felt exactly like that. Like he was in a war, and he was caught behind enemy lines. And he used prayer as a means of calling out to God, of expressing himself to God for help and for assurance, for grace and for guidance. Now, maybe you know what it's like to be in a place of deep despair. I think that if you look over the current cultural climate, almost everybody has reached a point of despair. We despair when we see a police officer murdering a civilian. And we despair when riots result in several people, maybe even a couple dozen or a few dozen people, being murdered, lives being destroyed, property being burned to the ground, lawlessness running rampant. We know what it's like to despair. We know what it's like to experience even prolonged despair. For three months, we've been looking at a world that seems completely different from anything we've ever seen. That's prolonged enough for me, three months. But experiencing that kind of despair is part of the human experience. And there's so much despair right now among believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, one doctor in California recently reported that they've seen a year's worth of suicides in one month. That is a certain definite indication of the reality that many people are experiencing deep and heavy despair right now. And what David models for us in the psalm that we're going to be looking at today is that no matter how difficult your circumstances may be, no matter how dark your despair, how heavy your burden might be, we must learn to seek God in prayer, remembering his character and trusting in who he is and what he has done and what he has promised he will do. If you have never learned Hebrew before, 
and, and couldn't see uh, this psalm in its original language, you'd completely miss the fact that this psalm is actually an acrostic, which means basically that each line starts with uh, a sequential letter in the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, if you look at uh, the song sheet for Psalm 25 that we, uh, that we just sang this morning, you'll see the first verse, uh, first, uh, verse or two, uh, it's A, B, C, D, right down the edges, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Uh, right down the edges, and, and that's how this, uh, this psalm was written. Now, maybe David wrote it that way just to be poetic, um, or maybe he wrote it this way to, uh, to just be creative, or, or maybe, just maybe, and, and there are commentators who believe this, maybe he did it as a way to have it function kind of as a mnemonic device, so, uh, something that would make it easier for students, even young, young students, children, to memorize as they studied this psalm. So let us be like young students today and commit ourselves to looking at and studying this psalm in order that we may learn how to deal with despair in a way that glorifies God and strengthens us. Let's start with verses 1 to 3, Psalm 25. It says, A Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Now, unlike a lot of the Psalms that David has written, uh, we aren't exactly sure what his circumstances are here. We don't know what he was up against. We don't know exactly which point in his life. Like we can't go to uh, to Chronicles and, and, and or, or the book of First or Second Samuel and see. Oh, okay, this must be when David was writing this. We we, we don't know. Uh, all we know is that he's afraid, and he's reached the point of despair. He has concerns, just in the moment, that God will not do what God has said, that God will abandon him, and that God's abandoning of him will leave him humiliated and defeated. Now, if you know anything about David, you might be wondering, why would he be worried about that? And I'd say, probably for the same reason that you or I might be tempted to experience the exact same type of fear. First, because David is a sinner, and he knows it, And he hates it, and he knows that there is nothing that he can do about it to change it. And secondly, because it seems, in the moment, it seems like his enemies are going to prevail over him. And as a result, in that moment, his feelings got the best of him. How many of you know what that's like to have your feelings get the best of you in just a moment? You kind of have to wake yourself up, like shake yourself back to life to, to remember, oh, wait a minute, those are just my feelings. His feelings got the best of him, but only for a moment because he moves very quickly from, from what he's afraid of, what he's feeling, what his perception is, to having faith in God. Now, you, you've heard me say before, multiple times, that if it were possible for us to lose our salvation, we absolutely, most certainly would, in about two seconds, less than that. Now, we know this, right? We, we know this up here, right? We, we know this intellectually. We know that the Bible says so much 
about the security of our salvation. And yet, even Christians who know this, who, who have it up here fixed in their minds, have struggles with assurance from time to time. Why is that? Because we have an enemy who loves to remind us of our sin. And because we know, and the enemy likes to remind us of the fact that God is holy. Sometimes the devil does remind us of God's holiness, but not because he's in awe of God because of that, but because he wants to remind us of how utterly sinful and unholy you and I are. How, how far from true perfection we are. How, how far from godly, uh, sinless perfection you and I are. And so what ends up happening, even among very mature Christians, and David does seem to be uh, in, in his older years here. He does seem to be uh, in, in his more mature years at this point. So what ends up happening, even among mature Christians, is we start wondering how God could possibly love us. Considering our awareness of our sin and knowing that if we're aware of it, he's even more aware of it. And so we start wondering how God could possibly love us, how God could possibly put up with us, how could he tolerate us, why doesn't he just give up on us? But just like David was done for if God turned away from David, we're done for if God turns away from us, aren't we? Because we're surrounded by enemies. The devil hates us, the world hates us, and they would both absolutely demolish us. They would, they would crush us if they could, if God were to forsake us and lift his sovereign restraining hand from our enemies. But verse 3 here in Psalm 25, verse 3 is the hope that David immediately reverts to. It's the hope that he immediately brings to the front of his mind and clings to. What, what does he say in verse 3? He says, indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. In other words, help is on the way. God will be faithful and true. David just needs to wait on the Lord. So David instantly has reminded himself that God is faithful. God is faithful. He will never, ever forsake or turn away from his people. Ever. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. He will never give up on us. Never. And by the way, just like God's faithfulness will prevent David from being abandoned and ashamed by God, God's faithfulness also ensures that the wicked will be ashamed. They will suffer. Look what he says in the second half of verse 3. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. As you look at the riots and everything going on today, as you look at police who are getting out of control and, and murdering civilians, you better know that this is true. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. They will suffer. They will regret the day that they were born if they do not receive God's grace and turn from their sin. And so David's confidence starts to be restored. He finds comfort. He waits on the Lord. But, but how can we trust God the same way that David did? Like David, we wait on God and we trust. 
And what we see in the rest of the psalm to follow is that there are four qualities, that there are four aspects of waiting on God. The first is that we commit ourselves to walking in obedience to the Lord. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. David writes, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. The first step is committing ourselves to walking in obedience to the Lord, even in the midst of our despair. Now this is really where the the Christian journey begins, isn't it? With a willingness to submit ourselves to God, with a willingness to be instructed by God. Because if we're not willing to be instructed by God, then what's the difference between us and the world? Zero. If we're not willing to commit ourselves to God and to submit ourselves in, in, in surrender to him, we should be very concerned for the state of our soul. Indeed, if a person isn't willing to be instructed by God, if they have no willing to walk in obedience to God's ways, then there's really no basis for any sense of assurance they might have in regard to their own salvation. The person who isn't committed to obeying God isn't committed to trusting God and certainly isn't committed to waiting on God. At one point in his ministry, Jesus points out the the silliness and indeed the, the hypocrisy of claiming to follow him, of claiming to believe in him, and yet not walking in obedience to what he has said. He says to his followers at one point in his ministry, Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? What he's saying there is, it's hypocritical. So we see that the first step that David takes in in waiting on God and having his confidence in God restored is a willingness to obey God, a willingness to be taught by God. He waits on God, not as God's equal, not as somebody who has one foot in and, and one foot out with God, but as a student who is committed to willful, joyful, self-denying obedience. Now notice, notice the verbs that, that come in verses 4 and 5 with me. Make me, teach me, lead me. See, David has no interest. He knows the foolishness of following his own heart. That's the cry of our culture. You have to follow your heart. That is a lie from hell. That is completely the opposite of what God tells us to do. So he's not going to follow his own heart. Uh, he's interested only in following after God's own heart. He's not going to fake it till he makes it. No, he knows that there is no faking it with God. There is no talking the talk and yet not walking the walk with God. You cannot fool God. You might fool people, but you cannot fool God. And so the only way for David to learn God's ways is if God makes David learn them. See, the person who thinks that they can follow their own heart or find their own way does not understand the depths of wickedness that live in the human heart. 
They have a very flawed understanding of their own nature. And as a result, they're prideful. They're prideful. So you can't come to God pridefully. You can only go to God humbly because humility follows an understanding of how lost we are apart from God giving us guidance and grace. And David knows this. Even as he writes this in his old age, David doesn't lean on his own understanding. He doesn't trust his heart enough to follow it. He knows the wickedness, the depravity of his flesh. And he knows that what is possible for God is impossible with him. So he must rely on God. What is impossible for David is possible with God. What is impossible for you and me is possible with God. You know, every parent knows what it's like uh, and, and loves the process of teaching their children to walk. It starts, uh, you know, usually it starts with the parent taking each hand of their child and, and walking with them, holding them up and guiding where they go. But the day comes when that child can't wait and, and, and they'll, be, they'll be ready to let go and to start walking on their own. After a while, that's exactly what they do. And so you no longer hold them up and you no longer guide them. But this is not how the Christian life is, friends. It's completely the opposite. There there never comes a time, there never comes a point in our walk with God where we no longer need grace or where we no longer need guidance from God. There never comes a point where we don't need God to work in us in order to make us more like Jesus, to, to conform us to his image. There never comes a point where we can be prideful or trust in our own understanding or follow our hearts. There never comes a point where we no longer need God's Word because that's what He uses to instruct us. It never becomes something that we can just have a kind of casual attitude toward, like we can take it or leave it. No, the longer that you walk with the Lord, the more you will realize that you need His grace and His guidance not just every day, not even just every hour. You need it every minute. And thus the more we must saturate our minds with God's Word. The prayer of our life must be what David says here, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Let us never fall for the lie that God can lead us in his truth and yet we can be living our lives however we please. No obedience is central to the Christian journey. Why do you call Jesus Lord, Lord, if you don't do what he says? It's central to the Christian journey. A willingness to be taught and to be corrected is vitally important for the Christian. And yet we realize that obedience in and of itself, and as good and as crucial as it is for our walk with the Lord, it's just the first step. It's only the beginning. That's only the first aspect that David has laid out here because even if you were to obey perfectly for the rest of your life, and by the way, you won't, neither will I, even if you were to obey perfectly for the rest of your life, you and I still have a past. And the truth of the matter is that even when we're committed to obeying God, 
we have a constant struggle with the flesh and constant temptations to yield to the flesh and to to give in to sin. And thus the second aspect of waiting on God and trusting in God requires that we also must be eager to confess. We must be eager to confess. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. David says, Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Now, it's kind of interesting to to note the pattern here. Uh, There's a very interesting pattern here. Uh, He says, do remember this, but don't remember that. Do remember your compassion, O Lord. O God, do remember your, your loving kindness, but don't remember the sins of my youth. Don't remember my transgressions. What an interesting pattern. What we see here is that God's mercy, His, His loving kindness, is our greatest hope. It was David's greatest hope. And it's our greatest hope as well. And thus David is essentially saying, don't forget who you are, God. Because central to God's being is his faithfulness, his loving kindness to his people. So David's saying, don't forget who you are, God. Because when we talk about God's loving kindness, we're talking about his faithfulness to his covenant of grace with his people his faithfulness to his covenant of grace. Loving kindness, this is a word that we see actually 127 times throughout the Psalms. I think actually Katie posted a a meme the other day that uh, somebody had said that. 127 times throughout the Psalms. The Hebrew word is hesed, which refers to God's unfailing covenantal love and faithfulness to his people. His hesed, his loving kindness, is why our salvation, friends, is secure. That's why we won't be ashamed. That's why God won't abandon us or forsake us. Because of his loving kindness. Our salvation is secure not because we're so strong in our faith that we'll never let go of God, but because his covenant love for his people is never failing. And knowing this, knowing this gives us assurance. It it gives us confidence when it comes to confessing our sin. As David has his confidence in God restored, he also is remembering the sins of his youth. And so he begs God to forget them, to not remember them. Maybe David is referring to sins that he committed uh, a long time ago, but, but that didn't follow him throughout his life. Or maybe he's acknowledging that there have been sinful tendencies that have followed him all throughout life. See, when you're young, when you're young, you have this sense of invincibility, as though sin could never have such a strong hold on you that you won't be able to shake free of it by the time you're older. But that's not the case. That's not the case. Sin doesn't become easier to shake free from. It becomes more difficult 
to shake free from. It's not the case that by the time we're older, we'll have figured out how to shake free from sin. So you must confess and turn from your sin now because it will not get easier as you get older. It will only become more difficult. How many of you who are my age or or older maybe would do things so much differently so as to avoid certain temptations to sin that maybe still entice you today? If only you could go back and have a do-over. Man, to be honest with you guys, I completely understand where David is coming from. I know and relate to his struggle. And maybe you do too. Because the older I get, the more I hate the sins I loved in my youth. How I hate that I learned and became comfortable with selfishness, with pride, with being temperamental. But I'm reminded that the closer that a person grows to God, the more we're conformed to Christ's likeness, the more vile and the more deplorable our sin becomes to us. And the more aware we become of those sins. Our only hope is that God would forget. That God would forget. Now, of course, we we know that that's a figure of speech, right? Because God doesn't forget anything. He's all-knowing. So he doesn't forget anything. But this is just another way of saying that God forgives us and washes us completely clean and thus relates to us in a way that he would relate to us if we were without sin. That's what it means when it says that God forgets. What a blessing it is to know that the grace of God's forgetfulness is ours in Christ. What a deep comfort it is to remember that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you have believed in Christ in a saving way, committed to obedience, if you have believed in Christ and are committed to walking in obedience to him, then you can confess your sin regularly, right? And you do. Because he's instructed us to, and you're walking in obedience. That's part of being obedient. But you can rest assured, friends, that if you have believed in Christ, you have been granted in Christ this very kind of grace, a grace that forgives, a grace that forgets, a grace that washes us white as snow. And so with that said, friends, the gospel has freed you from needing to remember and from needing to dwell upon the things that God has forgotten. Let me say that again. The gospel, if you are in Christ, the gospel has freed you from needing to remember or dwell upon what God has forgotten. Therefore, when Satan whispers in your ear that you're a sinner, Maybe you should remind him that that's, a, that's great because Jesus came for only one kind of person, and that is sinners. One of the best ways, friends, when that voice of doubt whispers in your ear, when that voice of condemnation whispers in your ear, one of the best things you can do is be armed with Scripture to remember. How about Romans chapter 8, verse 1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've got that in the front of my mind 
for that very reason. Because I know that voice. I know that temptation to think that God would would just give up on me, that, that I'm not worthy of his love. I'm not. But because of Jesus, he loves me anyway. He loved us from eternity, and so he sent Jesus to redeem us. What a wonderful truth. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. David is so relieved to remember the grace of God's forgetfulness that he turns from talking to God to talking about God, to talking about God's goodness in what is basically at the middle or the heart of this psalm. Let's continue in verses 8 to 10, where David writes, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. The truth is, friends, God is so good. He has been so good to his people. Because he could have just left us on the broad road that leads to destruction. And it would have been perfectly just for him to do so. He did not have to show us grace. He did not have to extend mercy to us. He did not have to send Christ. There was no obligation on his part. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. But he did. He did. Because he's good. He's always good. Now, you, you hear people say that when good things happen in their lives. You don't, hear it hap- you don't hear people say it a lot when bad things are happening in their lives. But the fact is, we must learn to say it both in season and out of season. When times are good, and when we feel like we're about to despair. Do you believe that God is good on the mountaintops and in the depths of the valley? You should. Let me put this into a modern context for you. God certainly appears to have lifted his sovereign restraining hand from our nation. And the way that we know this is because God has ordained that the government would rule over evildoers. And right now, evildoers are reigning over the government. So what you see is that God's plan for the government has been completely flipped upside down. That's how you know that the lawlessness that's going on is satanic. Because Satan loves to take God's design for things such as the government, such as the family, and to turn those things on their head. That's, that's something that Satan does. People are being murdered. Property is being stolen or burned as our streets look like a scene from an apocalyptic movie. But in the midst of it all, Do you believe that God is working these things for good? Because his word says that he is. That he's causing all things to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Everything that he does is for his glory and for the good of his people. Do you believe that when life gets hard? You should. You must. If he has, if he has indeed lifted his hand that restrains sin from our land. Do you still believe that he's good? You should. You should. Because he is. 
David tells us that God is good and upright. Nothing that God ever does, nothing that God ever ordains is bad or wrong or evil. Even in this this dark, sinful, fallen world, God is continuing to call and to redeem his people, though they be sinners through and through. He nevertheless, despite the fact that they are sinners, he nevertheless teaches them his ways. He humbles them when they would refuse on their own to be humbled in order that he may teach them. And this is why, friends, this is why David and us, this is why David can confidently and humbly ask God for forgiveness. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. For it is great. One of the marks of a mature believer is an awareness of just how great our sin is, an increasing awareness of how great our sin is. I've said before that if you know if you had asked me 20-something years ago, when I first became a Christian, what I would look like today, what my life would look like today, I would have thought that, I, I, that I, by now I'd really have gotten most or all, uh, close to all of the sin out of my life. But instead, as, as I've grown older, I've only become more and more aware of sins that I, that I wasn't aware of when I was younger. And such is the case with every believer as they mature. They become aware of sins that they weren't aware of before. Friend, when you come to God for forgiveness, you do not need to downplay or to minimize your sin. You don't need to make it sound like there's really not that much for God to forgive. It's better that you should become aware of it, aware of all of it, the big sins that are obvious and the little sins that don't catch public attention like the big ones do. It was a sad moment when the man who is now our president said on national television that he has no need to ask God for forgiveness. In an interview on CNN, he said, quote, I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness, and I'm good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. I try to do nothing that is bad, end quote. Somebody hasn't read their Bible. Because, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but you are a sinner, just like I am a sinner, just like all of us are sinners, and we all have far, far more to ask forgiveness for than we realize. The fact is that these are words that no Christian can or should ever say. Even in his old age, as a man who was known for being a man after God's own heart, David acknowledged that his need for forgiveness was great. His need was great because his sin was great. But here's his hope. His God was greater. His God was greater, and and so was his God's and our God's ability to forgive. Friends, when we ask for forgiveness... We remember, we must remember that God loved us enough to send his only son, the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, never sinning, and who died in the place of every sinner who would repent and believe in him. 
And he rose from the dead on the third day to prove the sufficiency of his work. Don't you ever forget that. Don't you ever forget that because that is the basis of your salvation. Not the greatness or the lack of greatness, the the, the low amount of sin in your life. No, Christ's life was perfect. And his life has been imputed to you. His righteousness has been imputed to you. His upholding the law has been credited to you. It's yours. Our sins are many, but God's mercy is more. And if we downplay, if we, if we try to minimize in our minds or, or just talking with others about, if we try to minimize the, the depths and the seriousness of our sin, what we're doing is downplaying the greatness of God's grace. And David knew this, so he didn't pull his punches. He acknowledges before God that his sins are great. And so David waited on God and trusted in God in obedience, in confession. And third, what we'll see next is in fear. Fear of the Lord. Let's look at verses 12 to 15. David continues, Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, famously says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Later, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7, Solomon tells us, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There's a relationship there. Do you see that? A relationship between fearing the Lord and turning away from evil, being forgiven. Let's look at one more because the fear of the Lord is actually a very strong theme throughout the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 8.13 tells us, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Did you catch that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then he goes on to say the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The word of the day is tolerate. You don't tolerate evil. We don't tolerate evil. Not in our own life, not, not anywhere. We, we hate evil. The fear of the Lord demands no less than that we love what God loves and hate what he hates, and God hates evil. The reality is that we are sinners by nature. By nature, we we love what is evil, but if you have the fear of the Lord, you learn to turn away from what is evil. God will teach the person who fears him. How? Again, through his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, working in us to give us understanding, to give us a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. But those who fear the Lord also have what David says is the secret of the Lord. It's kind of a confusing term, kind of a a confusing translation, but the Hebrew word there essentially refers to a secret, personal, intimate relationship, a, a private counsel, if you will. As one commentator notes, quote, the essence of the road of the righteous is this, it is a road too difficult to walk without the companionship and friendship of God, end quote. 
And that is what God offers to those who fear him. Companionship. Indeed, friendship. We're called friends of God. That's what Jesus calls us in John 15. God blesses, God teaches, God forgives, and, and, and is a companion to those who fear him. Fourth and finally, from the depths of despair, David waits and trusts in God as he prays. As he prays. Let's continue reading verses 16 to 21. He says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Now we see seven prayers here, seven things that David is praying for. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my afflictions. Forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies. Guard my soul and deliver me. And let integrity and uprightness preserve me. Seven prayers. Seven things that he's praying for. What a blessing and what a deep comfort it is to know that there is no pit of despair that is so deep that God cannot hear us. There is no pit of despair that's so deep that God cannot rescue us out of it. If we want to be taught by God, if we want to be led by God, if we want to be rescued by God, then let us get in the habit of regularly speaking to God and crying out to Him. These are great things to add to your own prayer life, by the way. All seven of these things. David ends the psalm by, by sort of switching gears. Let's look at the final verse, verse 22. He says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Now you might notice that the first 21 verses of this psalm have been dealing with David's situation and crying out to, to, help, uh, for, for, to God for help for his own situation. But he suddenly switches gears from praying for himself in his own despair to praying for Israel and all of his troubles. It goes from being a personal prayer to being a prayer for all of God's people, including, friends, including you and me, if indeed we are in Christ Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so this right here, this final verse, this is really an invitation to you and to me to sign our names to the bottom of this prayer because we know what it's like to find ourselves in the depths of despair, don't we? If you have never believed in Jesus and you find yourself today in a place of despair, I want you to know, first of all, that you have sinned and that you have not only sinned, but you have sinned against a holy God. A holy God who has every right to demonstrate his justice by pouring his wrath against your sin out on you. But, but he has made an offer whereby you can be forgiven. An offer that he will not negotiate on. And an offer that is this, that you 
come to Christ, that you believe in Christ, God's only Son, the only mediator between man and God, and that you come to Him committing yourself to walk in obedience to Him. Come to Him, and He will forgive you. Come to Him, and He will wash you clean from the stain of sin. Nothing else can. There's no other cure. There's no other remedy. There's only believing in Christ, believing that He is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's His promise, friends. That is His promise. Come to Him and be washed clean. Clean of all unrighteousness. Christians, we must never forget that if we come to God prepared to obey, prepared to confess our sin, prepared to fear Him rightly and to cry out to Him, He will hear us and He will answer us. No matter how deep the valley may be, no matter how dark or how difficult our circumstances may be, no matter how grieving or burdensome our trials may be, we can always trust that God is able to deliver us from them, both for our good and for His glory and for His namesake. Now this doesn't mean that our problems and our circumstances will necessarily instantly change. They might, but they might not. Maybe what it means is that God will give us the right perspective of our problems that we're facing. Maybe it means that God will give us the strength to endure them. But friends, the bottom line is this. In a time when there is so much despair, no matter how difficult your circumstances, no matter how dark your despair may be, we must learn to and we must practice seeking God in prayer, remembering His name, remembering His character, trusting in who He is and what He has done and what He has promised He will do. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank You once again for Your Word. Thank You for the way that Your Word points us to Christ. Thank You for the way that it shows us our sin. It shows us who we are, and it shows us who You are. But it also shows us that there is a mediator between us as sinful human beings and you as a righteous, just, holy God. Teach us to trust in Him more fully. Teach us to look to Him in our moments, in our times of despair. Oh Lord, we pray. We pray for our, our culture, and we pray for ourselves. We pray that people would see that Christ is the answer to our despair and that many would be called and saved for Christ's glory during this time. Oh God, the world looks like chaos, but we take refuge in you. We take refuge in you knowing that you are sovereign and knowing that your faithfulness, your loving kindness never fails. In Jesus' name.
Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper